by Herod. He's then challenged by Satan. And then Jesus then begins his ministry. That's the first thing he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what Matthew's doing is he's saying, and what we see in Psalm 45 is, Jesus is that promised Messiah King. So when we look at Psalm 45, we don't want to just look for a historical king to whom this may have been read, but it's pointing to something beyond that. They were types of messiahs, but the messiah has come in Jesus. So when we read the psalm, we're going to see and understand Jesus in the verses that we read. Now, if this points to Jesus ultimately, then who is the bride? Well, the bride wouldn't be a woman that we would expect. Jesus never married. We would expect the church. And this makes sense because in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people was often using bridal-type language, marital-type language. You see this in the New Testament. In fact, when John the Baptist, when all the people came out to John the Baptist to see if he was the Christ, here's what he says. He says, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Remember, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It isn't like Tom Mercer. Jesus the Christ, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. It means Messiah. So John says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is saying, my joy is complete because the bridegroom has come for the bride. And the bride are those saints collected together in the church. So that's how we're going to look at the psalm. It's really a simple psalm. It's going to sound maybe a little confusing. First verse, we're going to hear the psalmist expresses joy. The first then 10 verses from 2 to 10, we're going to just hear about the glory of this king, this Jesus, the bridegroom that comes for us. And then 10 to the end of this psalm, we'll be speaking to the glories of the church that is the bride of Christ. So join with me, if you will, in Psalm 45, and we'll read the whole thing through. And I'll read it slowly, but, but let the loftiness of the language fill your heart with excitement. Here's the psalmist. He says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Now he shifts. Okay, the psalmist shifts to the church now and says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. 
All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So do you see how this psalm is picturing a coming king, which is what Advent's about? We're waiting for this king to come, and Jesus has come. And now the psalmist in these first 10 verses explains to you. And I just want you at this point to just sit back and relax as he just kind of enumerates the accolades of this king. The psalmist, look, he says, my heart overflows. That Hebrew word means to bubble over. It means to boil up. That he is so excited. He is tongue. He is ready to speak forth the praises of God as quick as a scribe would be ready with a pen to take whatever note he has to take. So he's excited to tell us about the glories of this king. And look at the first thing he says. Is, You're more handsome than all men. You're beautiful. Now, we don't think that he's speaking about, hey, the description, a physical description of Jesus will be handsome. I mean, when I was growing up, all the pictures, he tended to be blonde and blue-eyed. I never knew if he was British or Californian. And, and obviously, he's not speaking about that. He's speaking about the nature of the character. God had already said, he said this, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So when God looks at Jesus, he, say, he sees his absolute beautiful character. There's no stain, there's no wrinkle, there's no blemish. I mean, think about that. At Jesus' baptism, when God looked at him and the voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom is my full pleasure. In other words, God is absolutely pleased. You know, when we look at characters and try to discern the quality of a character, it can often be discerned by this. What do they love? And what do they hate? And by the objects of their love... And by the objects of their hate, you can discern the quality of a person's character. What does that say about you? What are the things you love? And what are the things that you hate? And what does that reflect about you? Well, for Jesus, we see. It says that he loved righteousness. He loved God. Everything that pointed to the glory of God, he loved. And he hated wickedness. You know, sometimes I can be ambivalent to wickedness if it doesn't affect me. Now, I'm all up in arms if it affects me. But if it doesn't affect me, I'm okay with it. But he hates all wickedness. His character is absolutely stellar, pristine, without stain, without blemish. Jesus' character is more beautiful than any. But not just that. Look at his words. If out of the mouth the heart speaks, well, then look at the graciousness that's poured upon his lips. When you consider the ministry of Jesus, and you look at all the things he says, you don't take issue with them. Rarely does Jesus offend, except if you're religious. He doesn't seem to offend. He's, he's gracious with his words. He's kind. He's compassionate. You see that he has power to calm the wind and the seas. You see that he has wisdom to refute the arrogant. And yet he can speak softly to children. He can comfort the prostitute. He can invite the tax collector. When he speaks of the gospel, think about it. What more gracious thing can you declare than the gospel? To declare that God has come, he has sent Christ to deliver us from our brokenness and our sin and our cosmic treason, to declare that to someone that through faith in Christ you are a child of God, that is gracious. 
There's no condition placed upon it. There's no expectation. It's simply, this is what God has done to declare his glory. These are gracious words. And when people heard the ministry of Christ, they knew he was gracious. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses. In John 7, uh, if you were to read the whole chapter, you would see that the Pharisees had sent the temple guards. There were certain guards that protected the temple. And they sent these guards to go arrest Jesus because of his preaching. And so the guards were sent under order to arrest him. So here's what they say. They say, um, officers therefore came to the chief priests and said to them, so they came back and the chief priest said to them, why didn't you bring them? So the chief priest who sent the guards said, why didn't you bring them? And here's what they said. The officer answered, the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Now these are trained soldiers and they're going to reject the order of their superior because of the way he speaks. What was he saying? How was he saying it? That these armed men would turn around and disobey an order. Can't you imagine? Wouldn't you love to hear him speak? Or what about Luke 4.22? All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. That's right out of Psalm 45. They didn't even know they were quoting it. Grace poured upon his lips. I mean, consider that. His character is stellar. His words are unflappable. They're perfect in every way. But not just that, his cause is just. His reign is just. Look at 3, 4, and 5. Gird your sword, O mighty one. That's El Gabor. That's mighty God. You see the same word used in 9, 6, speaking about the virgin with child. He says, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. It's amazing how Jesus' ministry wasn't like Napoleon. It wasn't like Alexander. It wasn't a kingdom advanced by troops and blood. It was advanced by preaching truth and righteousness. In Isaiah 9, we see the exact same thing written by the prophet Isaiah. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, that's that El Gabor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, you see the same language in his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. In other words, Jesus has come to establish a kingdom that is going to set back to God's design. He's going he's to turn aside the injustice. He's going to bring about righteousness. I mean, when you look at the kingdoms of our world right now, I mean, you just look at the major kingdoms of our world. I mean, are they not marked by exploitation, injustice, unfairness, lack of transparency? And you have. We crave good justice. We crave good government. In fact, well, as a staff, we're reading this book by Richard Lovelace. He was a professor at Gordon-Conwell when I studied there. And uh, he wrote this, and I found it very stirring. He says, one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. The poor and the disadvantaged contend against the system with the conviction that another economic order will make the world livable. Every four years, the American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. Economic downturns, crop failures, moral declines, worsening uh, international conditions are all blamed on presidents who in most cases have little control over events. In the hearts of the people is a groping and inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler 
would come along, the world would be healed of all of its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. That's what we need. We need Christ to bring a kingdom of righteousness. We go through, even in a country like ours, with, I think, a government that is, that is a strong and good government, Every year we go through the drama of shutdown and we're going to spend the money. We need this kingdom. We need this government. It's to create a longing on us for that king to come back to consummate the marriage. But not just is his character stellar, not just is his words gracious, not just is his reign just, but his victory is assured. Look at how it says in verse 3, he will ride out victoriously or successfully. He says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall unto you. There's no doubt over the success of his kingdom. And the arrows of the king, they're going to pierce the heart of the enemy. I mean, make no mistake, he will be victorious. He will be absolutely victorious. We see in his ministry how he conquered sickness. We see how he conquered leprosy. We see how he conquered death in his resurrection. We see how he conquered darkness. You know, it says in Hebrews 2.14 that he too partook of flesh and blood to destroy the works of the devil, that he broke the back of Satan. Those arrows are against all the enemies of this king, even us. Do you realize that the Christian, the Christian can always admit that he was once an enemy of God. I find that people that don't, ever admit that they've once been an enemy of God, they don't understand what they've been saved from. And his arrows have pierced the heart of the broken and filled it with conviction and given grace to turn and repent and be saved. That's, God is rolling back all kingdoms through his son. Not just the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of man. Our absolute rebellion in fact, Matthew Henry said it much more eloquently than I can. He says that psalmist joyfully foretells the progress and success of the Messiah. The arrows of conviction are very terrible in the hearts of sinners till they are humbled and reconciled. But the arrows of vengeance will be more so to his enemies who refuse to submit. This is a warning. This is a warning that in God's economy, there are those who have come by faith and are forgiven and reconciled. And there are those who are not. And they remain as enemies. And so this is an implicit warning. I don't look at this as a threat because God's too gracious, but it's a warning to you. If you're not a Christian, where do you stand before this Christ? Here he has a sword on his thigh. He rides victoriously into battle. He has, he has offensive arms. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you consider yourself before him? But then the, the psalmist goes on, and he speaks about the eternal nature of his throne. Look at 6 and 7. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is righteousness. I think the psalmist almost kind of reaches into the heavens for this one. But because he speaks about the eternal nature of this Messiah, that, that, that there'll never be an end to his reign. Now listen, the writer of Hebrews picks this verse up. And what's interesting is, <clears throat> if you were to read this in Psalm 45, it's interesting to hear a psalmist say to the king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, the, the Hebrew word there is Elohim, and in a couple of places it refers to men or to angels. So you could think, well, maybe this isn't really the Messiah. But 
In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews puts it in the mouth of God. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, he says this, God says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is speaking to God the Son, confirming that your reign will be forever and ever and ever. Now think about that. I mean, think about the reigns, the great reigns in our history, right? You have, you have Alexander, you have Caesar, you have Charlemagne, you have Napoleon. Where are their reigns? Where are their kingdoms? They're gone. What about last year or last century, right? You have, the, you have Hitler, you have Stalin, you, you have Churchill, you have Eisenhower, Roosevelt. Where are their reigns? They're gone. What about now? Putin, you have Obama, Cameron. Where are the reigns going to be in 5, 10, 15 years? They're gone. They're all going to be gone. We worry about these rulers. They're all men like grass. The sun comes out. They fade away. Only his reign will be forever. <clears throat> what the psalmist is doing, he, he wants your heart to overflow with joy and excitement for this king. I mean, do you delight in Christ? It, let me ask you a question. So <clears throat> if delighting in Christ is the heart of the Christian faith, what does your delight and thankfulness reveal about your understanding of the faith? Can you give quick word to the appreciation and thankfulness that you have for such a king who has saved you? Can, like, like, like he says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He's got his pen, it's dipped in the ink, he's ready. Are you like that? You know, if... if if what we speak about most is what we love most and think about most, what does that say about us? I think for many of us, we feel the sense of conviction right now that, that we haven't given, perhaps, thought to these things. Perhaps you've read Psalm 45 and you just read it quickly because you wanted to read it and then get on with your day. And you didn't realize this thing was chocked full of diamonds that were sewn in the text for you to enjoy by God. Well, how do we move? Folks, I'm trying to move. I know we're in the middle of Christmas season here, and, and it's, like, it's like, you know, excitement on steroids with all that's happening. But can I ask you to contemplate? Can I tell you that the path out of this kind of lackadaisical approach to Jesus Christ comes through contemplation and meditation? Can, can I ask you to, to spend some time today and, and throughout this week to just consider some of these things? I mean, when you think about, for example, his character, who is better, finer, kinder, or wiser than Christ? Who can you think of in history or even in the circle of people that you know? Who would be of a more noble character than Christ? Or who would be more gracious in his words? You know, Jesus was able to shut down the arrogant. He was able to lift up the downtrodden. He, he was able to speak with grace, even when bringing a word of harsh rebuke. Who can speak better than Jesus Christ? Or not just his speech or his character. What about his reign? What kingdom have you ever seen or ever heard about that, was, that will be and is as just as his? I mean, or transparent as his? or that's so concerned with the downtrodden and the broken and the disenfranchised? What kingdom would rival his? Or his eternal throne? What kingdom has lasted? Rome lasted for a lot of years, no doubt, but 
Not really that long compared to eternity. Three, four hundred years maybe, but, but not like his. And, and, and let's take it a step further, although the text doesn't go into it. Who has displayed a love for you like he has? Who has come from so far, stooped so low to lift you up through his death? Uh, who has been so willing to sacrifice himself for you? I mean, is he not worthy of your praise and my praise? Is he not worthy? What else can he do to you to be more glorious? What else can he do? What else could he say? I, I want to encourage us to be like this psalmist who, with a tongue ready to sing his praise, the joy of it is, when you do that, your joy will only increase. Giving praise to him increases your own joy of him. So it's not just meditation, it's declaration as well. I've quoted this before, but it bears repeating from C.S. Lewis. He writes this, he says, and this is a good quote regarding the importance of us having ready tongues to, to just express our joy over this king that will come and deliver us. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. There is a completion of your joy as we express our joy in Christ. So, so that's the first part of the psalm, just speaking to the glories of Christ. That's why I love Advent. We were talking about this in prayer time before the service. Advent is just built into the church calendar to keep reminding you, he has come, he's coming again, and here is a description of the one that's coming. Can you rejoice with me over his goodness and his glory and his grandeur? People, his character is stellar, his words are gracious, his reign is just, his victory is assured, and his throne is eternal. But now he turns to the church, the bride. This is where it gets really interesting. Look with me back at 10. He says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. He is begging you to pay attention to him. He is begging you to hear as if you haven't read this before. And he says this, he says, forget your people and your father's house. This is kind of the sermon if... if this is like our application to what I've just said. I mean, he's saying, forget your people and forget your father. Now, that seems to me to be over the top. I mean, the fifth commandment with a blessing is honor your father and mother. He's saying, no, no, forget about it. Now, obviously, he's speaking about that in comparison to the devotion and the love that you have for this king. Your Christ has come for you. I mean, forget your own people. Forget your father. And pursue Christ. Adore Christ. Commit all your allegiance to Christ. That's what he's calling for. You're about to be married. You're about to be wed to this king. Sever all ties. Any old loves. Any old flames. Any pursuits that weren't centered in Christ. Hack them off like a, like a gangrene arm. Hack them off. Be solely and singularly devoted to Christ. And it says he will delight in your beauty. Because you will be beautiful. When the eyes of a wife are only for the, for the face of the husband, that's a delight for the husband to see. If Carol had been walking down the aisle and 
stopping, backing up, going around here. I would have been trembling at the other end of that aisle if she had been looking around or keeping old commitments. Wouldn't have borne all these years of a good marriage. So there's a singular devotion. My fear for the church today is not rejection of Christ. It's distraction from Christ. It, it, there's a distraction. Perhaps it's with worries. You know, you're worried about your children. You're worried about your job. You're worried about international conflict. You're worried about money. You're worried about pension, retirement. You're worried about health. I'm not saying that some of those, some of those threats aren't real. I just want you to take those threats and hold them against the king and say, well, who is he in relation to these threats? You know, all those things that distract you from him. Scripture says, cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. We um, preached at a funeral a couple days back, and I preached in Psalm 23. And I love Psalm 23 because that one fourth verse, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, the psalmist here, David, in Psalm 23, he doesn't deny the reality of evil and threat. He just doesn't fear it. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, we do have issues in this world, but they shouldn't distract us from the one who's greater than all those issues and who can take those issues and deliver us from them and save us through them. That's the power of this king that we worship. But not just we're distracted with worries. I think we're also distracted with blessings. We're very affluent people, very comfortable, very wealthy, very, um, very much at ease in this world. And these loves, these things, remember now, every good gift you have has come from God. And, and, and these gifts that he has given you are, are meant to be a display of if this is good, how much better is he? How much greater is he? And all these things are meant to just keep lifting our eyes up to see him. And yet they can distract us and we can begin to love them. This is what Augustine warned the church of, inordinate loves. You don't want to love this too much. It's not that significant. It's nice, but you're going to take it out to the junkyard soon. It's nice, enjoy it, but it won't serve you like this king will. So if we're the bride of Christ, we want to hack off all allegiances. So think about your life right now. And think about the loves that you have. And think about the pursuits that you have. The things that you engage in. The things you spend your money on. The time you spend thinking about different things. In five years, where will those things be? In ten years, where will they be? In fifty years, where will they be? When you stand before God, how significant will they be? And use that as a determination as to its value rather than the enjoyment you have right now from that one thing. And I think it's going to reorder life for you. So that's the first thing he says. Forget your people, forget your father. There's a commitment. Secondly, he says in verse 10, at the second part of it, or 11, it says, since he is your Lord, bow to him. So the church is to bow to him. Now, you know, in many cultures, to bow is a sign of reverence and respect, honor, adoration. This word can also be translated worship. He's saying that the church is to be responding and preparing for her king, not just by cutting off all allegiances except him, but also worshiping him. But when I speak about worship, in this context, I'm speaking about a worship from us that's born out of love and affection. In other words, in other words, our faith is not fueled by a sense of obligation that we have for what Jesus has done for us. Our 
our faith is expressed and our, our, our faith and our obedience and our holiness is expressed by our devotion to him. This is different. You know, if you were to take, again, the context of marriage, if at the end of 50 years, Carol says to me, you've been faithful all these years. And I would say to her, well, thank you. I've always wanted to complete my responsibility to be faithful to you there would be a certain sense of loss in the nature of that relationship. If, if my obedience and faithfulness to Carol is simply born out of obligation to a duty that I perceive that I have as a husband, there's something, there's something missing of a tremendous order. There's a certain love. And, and what I mean by that is, if my faithfulness is born out of love, it speaks less of my faithfulness and it speaks more of her worth. If, if my obedience to the marital covenant that I've made is born out of devotion to my wife or us as a church in devotion to Christ, if our holiness is born out of devotion to Christ, it speaks to his worth more than it speaks to our obedience or our faithfulness. And that's really what we're talking about here is a marriage is built on love, this love for one another. Our, us as a church, we're loving God. We're loving this coming king for us. So, so when I speak and quote Augustine and say, you know, love God and do what you want, that's not a license to go crazy. Well, I'm forgiven. It's my insurance policy. I can do it. Love God. If you really love him, then love is the motivation to serve. Affections and devotion rather than a sense of obligation. If you define religion by what you do and how you do it and how much you keep all the rules, you're really not speaking about a New Testament religion. Paul chides the church at Colossae. He chides them, says, don't get back into this, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Don't live by rules. Now, let me caveat that. For those of you with young kids are thinking, where in the world is he going? Religion and our relationship with God isn't defined by the measure of rule keeping, but by the affections of our heart, which birth into holiness and obedience and reverence. Listen to what Richard Sibb said about this. He said, affections are lawful. Yes, they are necessary in God's children. All actions in God's worship are esteemed according to the affections that they are done with. We are as we love, not as we know. It's a very important line right there. You may know many things about God, but if you don't love him, there is no worship. He says, what is the life of a Christian but the performance of things with courage, delight, and joy? He says, the strongest Christians have the strongest affections. For religion, he means that word in a good sense. For faith doesn't harden the heart, but it softens it. Regeneration doesn't take affections away but it restores them and sanctifies them and purifies them. So, so ask yourself, do you rejoice in him? What are the level of affections that you have? The fact that you've made a decision for Christ, a decision doesn't require transformation. You can make a decision based on knowledge, but affections are the true evidence of your salvation. And the last thing I think that the psalmist calls us the church to do with this coming king is rejoice. Rejoice. Look at 13 and 14 with me. And I'll finish up after this. He says, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. Her robes are interwoven. He is speaking about us now. He is speaking about what we will be. He says this. He says, in many colored robes, she is led to the king. 
with joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace. He's speaking about the heritage that we have. He's saying this to the church. Though you are dirty and broken and shame-filled right now, there comes a day. You have a heritage. There will come a day where he will wash you clean. He will give you a new name. He will give you a new title. You will be adopted. You will be cleansed, purified in every way. That, that he is going to make you look like this bride with robes interwoven with gold of Ophir. Gold of Ophir comes from the boot of Saudi Arabia. It's unique. It's precious. He's speaking about the glory that will be ours when he fully redeems us in every way, when he consummates his plan with us. I mean, folks, this is probably the hardest thing to preach about this is to get you to believe it. You look at your past, you look at your brokenness, you look at your sin, you look at the reoccurring nature of it, you look at the besetting sins, you often look at yourself and say, I haven't changed at all. Will he ever deliver me? Will I ever be different? When will the stains of the memories of my sins finally be removed? Here it is, when you see him. You will be made glorious. This is our heritage. This is what's coming to us by virtue of his unilateral grace. Now, folks, if this doesn't stir your heart, then I want to ask you, what are the longings of your heart? If the longings of your heart are to be made right with God in every way, perfectly enjoying him and loving him, he will honor the stirrings of those hearts. And if you have those stirrings, thank him, because they're from him. Let's take a minute, and, and in this time of silence, we have prayed for you, both as a as a staff and as a prayer team and through the week, that this time you would reflect on where you are with this king. If you're a Christian, rejoice over your heritage. Perhaps confess if you have false allegiances or your worship has been sterile. If you're not a Christian here, I would ask you to consider that this coming king that rides victoriously, what will you do when you meet him? either in his coming to us or in you going to him. And let's take a few minutes and then uh, Ray will close us in prayer.